Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. He alleges corruption. He is a whistleblower 
and has paid the price. Among his many allegations and charges against this federal agency, his allegations, challenges, and charges are that African American employment complaints of discrimination are being trashed. Stay tuned. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us here this evening at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. So glad to have you with us. And if you are listening and would like to join us in our chat room at Our Common Ground, where many people gather to discuss our broadcasts live, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to your left, OCG, and I hope all of you are well. Well, as um, it goes in the lives of us black people, there is much anew. I had a discussion with a, a very good and faithful soldier sister uh, this week, and I want to share with you something that she said, which I thought was so profound and so powerful. She said that white people refuse to suffer. And we see evidence of that in everything that has gone on since the election of this president of the United States, Barack Obama. They refuse to suffer. They refuse not to have what they believe to be their privilege. I thought that was so profound, and I really wanted to share it with you. Uh, Also this week, uh, I want to ask you to start looking at this whole issue of what's happening with uh, who I thought was an up-and-coming and potentially important legislator in our U.S. Congress, uh, Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr. Many of you have probably read that he is on leave from his office as the congressional representative in the Congress, in the House, from the state of Illinois. I don't know his congressional district number. But it's really interesting in the events that have happened over the five years in regard to Illinois politics and the governor who is off uh, at the lockup, 
and what has happened in regard to the rumors, innuendos, potential charges to Congressman Jesse Jackson, Jr. And now he seems to be, according to the reports that are re- we are reading, seems to be caving in to that stress, d- despite, and I can't speak to it and won't speak to, his innocence or guilt uh, in relationship to the allegations. But this is the kind of thing that happens to our promise. And one of the reasons that I featured as we came in to the broadcast this evening, um, the speech that comes from the architect in the movie The Matrix, because it is true, as we become powerful, as we find a place in which to become powerful, the forces of destruction come to us. And again, thank you all for being with us. Um, I have another thing that I want to share. I hope all of you will be joining us in the premiere of Soul of Fire, talk radio where spirit matters at TruthWorks Network on Wednesday evening at 10 p.m., with the author, scholar, and pastor, Dr. Matthew Johnson. Um, This broadcast is going to prove to provide a haven and a sanctuary for so many of us who from day to day, week to week, only simply have the fortitude to simply survive And if we are not going to be an invisible people in the future. You know, one of the things we we really have to be mindful of, that we may not be here in a hundred years or two hundred years, but we have heirs. And there are riches and stores that we pass on to our heirs. And we have to think about our future pass when we have transitioned, when we become an ancestor. So what we leave, the legacy that we leave, the lessons that we leave are so important. I want to share with you um, a letter which speaks volumes about the pain of our history and our ancestors before we bring on our guests and start talking about uh, with uh, Ricardo Jones, who's going to be our guest, before we start talking about corruption and deception at the EEOC. Uh, We are all hammering about where are the jobs, but I think we need to think about what happens when we have the jobs. In September 19th, on September 19th, In 1858, Abraham Scriven, who was a soldier, a slave, he was sold in Charlestown, South Carolina, on April 27, 1769. And I have on my website a picture of the slave auction poster. And it reads, Charleston, April 27, 1769, to be sold on Wednesday, the 10th day of May, next. 
a choice cargo of 250 Negroes arrived in the ship Countess of Suffolk, Thomas Davies Malter, directly from Gambia, by John Chapman and Company. This is the vessel that had the smallpox on board at the time of her arrival, the 31st of March last. Every um, since then has been taken to clean both ship and cargo thoroughly for who may be inclined to purchase need not be under the fear of appreciation of danger from infection. The Negroes are allowed to be the the likelihood parcel that have been imported this season. That is the poster. But Abraham Scrivens writes this letter to his wife. My dear wife, I take the pleasure of writing you these few with much regret to inform you that I am sold to a man by the name of Peterson, a trader, and stays in New Orleans. I am here yet, but I expect to go before long. But when I get there, I will write and let you know where I am. My dear, I want to send you some things, but I do not know who to send them by but I will try to get them to you and my children. Give my love to my father and mother and tell them goodbye for me. And if we shall not meet in this world, I hope to meet in heaven. My dear wife, for you and my children, my pen cannot express the grief I feel to be parted from you all. I remain your truly husband until death, Abraham Scrivens. I share that with you because that is our history. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're here to talk race with courage and in hope, speaking truth to power and ourselves, and I'm real grateful to have you all with us here tonight. Our guest tonight is Ricardo Jones. He is a former senior investigator at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, the federal agency which has the power to investigate discrimination in the workplace. Most of these workplace complaints are filed on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, or age. It is established under the the Civil Rights Act, Title VII, which protects persons on those bases from discrimination. Ricardo Jones charges that this organization has failed its mission miserably when it involves cases affecting African Americans. 
He says that when someone makes an official complaint to the EEOC, a professional investigation by law is supposed to be conducted where investigators look into those claims of discrimination at a at that particular workplace. And then, after 180 days of investigation, the EEOC tells the complainant in writing whether or not their case has any merit. And if it does, the complainant is issued a right to sue letter, which allows them to officially sue their employer in federal court. Our guest tonight claims that none of this takes place for far too many race discrimination cases filed by African Americans. According to him, and Ricardo James was an EEOC investigator, he was an EEOC insider, and he is a whistleblower who was employed by the New York City Office Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for nine years. He says that only 1% of the complaints made to the EEOC gets investigated, and others, typically those made by African Americans, are thrown into the garbage, are labeled unfounded. And instead of conducting proper investigation, huh, they just hand out EEOC right to sue letters. We're going to be talking with him about it because his job was to investigate mostly private sector workplace complaints. He was the only investigator in this New York office who refused to dismiss all black complainants as ordered by his managers and supervisors, and for this one reason, he was fired. He filed a complaint of race discrimination against the EEOC. The complaint was denied by the courts, and the Department of Justice sealed those files. And that is what we're up to at Our Common Ground. I want you to take a look at what our guest tonight had to say in summarizing what happens at the EEOC. This is Our Common Ground. I started at the EEOC in April 2001, which was under the Bush administration, and my tenure lasted to April the 1st, April Fool's Day, 2010. And they intentionally fired me on April Fool's Day to make the point that maybe I may be a fool for standing up for the rule of law for all people, not just African Americans, right? Uh, I'm going to address your questions this way. Uh, the Obama administration, we had great hopes because under the Bush administration, everybody understood that the EEOC, they 
combat decorated veteran who's been disabled in combat, serving this country for over 20 years, to watch what was going on at the EEOC, the, the, the tragedy of what was happening to black people and other people at the EEOC. Now, Janet, I, I don't emphasize on, on the corruption and the fraud and the incompetence that goes on with other groups like white groups, Hispanic groups, and Asian groups. And the reason why I don't do that, many people said that I should really say that it's, it's everybody's being uh, treated wrongly at the EEOC and the corruption affects everybody. But the numbers of the people in the other groups that are non-African Americans and non-foreign-born blacks are so small that it makes very little difference to them as a whole. The majority of the people that file complaints at the EEOC are black people. And black people are the ones that are being treated the worst. And it's really bad. It's not a little bad. It's very bad. But the real issue is, why are we as a community accepting this? Why are we as a community accepting this from supposedly a president of color? I don't understand that. Who is well, let's, a- let's talk about the history first. Um, you went to work at the EEOC under the Bush administration. Is that right? That's correct. Or right. under the Clinton administration. It was under the Bush administration. I went to work in April 2001. Uh-huh. At, at, at the point that when you arrived there, were you seeing some of this, and how were you seeing it? For those of who are, who are listening, uh, many times uh, a, 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 an individual will file a complaint directly with the EEOC, but a lot of people file complaints locally in in the process of their – how does that happen? Tell us about how – People file complaints. Okay, Janice. Let me explain basically what what the whole process is really, really involving. Now, as, as black people, first of all, there are many of us who are in total denial about being discriminated against because of our race. So, for us to even get to the point of willing to, willing to come forward and admit to ourselves and to others that we're being discriminated against because of our race or our nationality, you know, we have to go through this process. And this process has a lot to do with denial because we don't want to admit to the harm that has happened to us going back to slavery, just like the piece that you read about the guy who was a slave riding back home to his family. You know, it's a hard thing to admit that these these atrocities and this harm is happening to us because of our color of our skin and because Society has said it's all right to to look down on black people and treat black people subserviently. Mm-hmm. So when 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 an individual decides that he's going to complain about this, the first thing they complain about is they don't always say that it's race discrimination. They just say they're being discriminated against, or that they're they're being retaliated against, or somebody's treating me unfairly. We use the word unfair. Now, uh-huh. the problem with using the word unfair is, is if you go to your employer and say, I'm being treated unfairly, you're not protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's not a complaint of a protected activity. And your employer is kind of smiling at you and say, sure, let's talk about this, about unfair treatment, because they know they get a free pass by you saying it's unfair. So after a, a long period of time, you finally get to the point of realizing that it's not really unfair. It is really discrimination because of my race, my color. That's the real mm-hmm. reason. 
I'm black. And then you mm-hmm. go to your employer. Now your employer is going to start dealing with you entirely different at that point because your employer knows you are now complaining of a protected activity, which is protected under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So he's going to start retaliating against you. So now you're, you have an adversarial relationship with your employer, and they're trying to figure out a way of how to get rid of you. You go to the EEOC to try to basically investigate your complaint of race discrimination. But the EEOC doesn't do an investigation. What they do is they make your situation even worse than what it is. They basically call up your employer and they say, hey, you know, there's Joe Blow, uh, such and such, has come and made a complaint of race discrimination. And basically they said, you know, you need to do something to him. And guess what your employer does? He turns around and retaliates against you, and he fires you, or he harasses you, or he just he just he just uh, discriminates and retaliates against you even more. And the EEOC, mm-hmm. instead of stopping that, filing an injunction or restraining order to, to keep them from firing you or treating you badly or worse or harassing you mentally or emotionally, they just sit back and say it's okay. And then the situation Now, that's the way it's supposed to work. They're supposed to do this investigation to determine how you, the complainant, is being treated differently than your white counterpart, uh, whether or not you've been subjected to a difference in how policies are are, are applied in promotion or salary or whatever. Now, that's how it happens for normal people. But can you please explain to me, Ricardo Jones, how does it happen to a senior EEOC investigator who works for for EEOC? How did it start with you? Well, it started before I even started working at the EEOC because I had worked for a government contractor, and while I was working for this government contractor, which is named MPRI, and uh, and they were they were contracting with the United States Army, and and I was discriminated against by a Hispanic clique at Fort Hamilton, New York, and this Hispanic clique basically was there at Fort Hamilton. They were were Hispanic officers and Hispanic non-commissioned officers, and Hispanic civilians that. Uh, didn't like the way that I was doing my job because I wasn't Hispanic and I was black. And at that point, they decided they are going to get rid of me and put somebody in that they liked other than Ricardo Jones, black Ricardo Jones. I filed a complaint at the EEOC, and uh, it, it, it just, you know, it was like a joke. You know, they laughed it off like, yeah, they're going to go through. This was a government agency and the United States Army, and, and they called up the people who discriminated against me. And, and, and basically they told the story that they wanted to tell. Everybody stuck to their story that Ricardo is really uh, making this up. It's not true, whatever. And they all laughed, and it was a big joke. And the investigator that did the investigator, which, which was a government contractor, an individual, she was black also. But to continue getting the contracts that she was getting, she went along with all lies and stuff, right, even though she knew it was lies. But if she would have revealed in in, in her report of investigation, uh, she would not get any more contracts from the Department of the Army. So she went along with it, too. 
And it even got to the point of getting to an administrative judge at the EEOC. And then after I wrote the administrative judge, he said that I should go to the NAACP. Now, I, I went to the EEOC, the highest civil rights agency. Wait a minute. The EEOC told you you should go to the NAACP? <laughs> right. Unbelievable. Right. I know. But, you know, people who are listening to this, people who have been subjected to this kind of craziness, they understand exactly what you're saying, that you weren't the right person, you weren't the black person who fit in because they didn't want you to fit in. Well, Janice, that's exactly right, but they didn't want me to fit in because I was doing a better job. They had been basically BSing what they were doing. They were supposed to be getting people to join the Army and the Army Reserves, and basically they weren't too good at it, so they just uh, were satisfied with the status quo of doing nothing. And then I came in, you know, out of nowhere from Dallas, Texas to New York City, and I start putting in people in the Army and the Army Reserves like it was going out of style, and it was making them look bad. So they decided, well, we're going to get rid of this guy because he's rocking the boat here. He's making us look bad by doing his job. So, But the tragedy here was when I went to the EEOC, and I honestly thought that they were going to do a, a thorough investigation. And when I finally it took me so long to even get it in there and stuff, and uh, uh, and then when I get to this administrative judge, and then he tells me to go to the NAACP because the NAACP is the only agency who could possibly deal with these type of issues. And I'm saying, you're an administrative judge. You have the authority here. And he said, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just, just telling you that if you really want something done seriously, you need to go to the NAACP. Now, to, to really make a long story short, you know, he knew I was very naive, and that was a naive thing for me to accept because the NAACP has basically sold out the black community. They have taken contracts. They've taken donations from uh, corporations and individuals where they basically can't go after anybody themselves. Benjamin Gillis is, is, is a, a wasted individual, and Rosalind Brock, is another wasted individual. First of all, they're too young to even know what race discrimination and what the civil rights movement is all about anyway. They were never subjected to any real discrimination. They're the beneficiaries of people who have been subjected to race discrimination in the civil rights movement. They're like three generations, two generations beyond that. But they're now running the NAACP, and they're really not doing anything. They're just an administrative agency that's pretending like it's really out to benefit colored people. And the truth is they're only out to benefit themselves. Okay. So you you actually, you were young and naive, and you actually went to the NAACP, and they did nothing, and so you ended up at the EEOC. No, I ended up unemployed. I ended up unemployed. That's exactly what happened. I couldn't take it anymore, and, I, you know, they forced me out. It's called a constructive discharge, and I was constructively mm-hmm. discharged because, uh, you know, I just couldn't take it anymore. It didn't matter how good I was doing my job. It didn't matter how many bonuses they were paying me. You know, the the, the Hispanics that were running everything at Fort Hamilton just didn't want me there, and, and they did. And they, since they were the, the client of this government contractor, they just basically say, hey, look, we don't care what he's doing. You know, he's got to go. We don't want this black guy here. He's he's rocking the mm-hmm. boat. And you he, know, he'll... Uh, Ricardo, I don't want to go so fast because there are a lot of people who came to listen to this show because they really because they really need the information about how to combat 
uh, employment discrimination, whether EEOC does it or a private attorney does it. But let's talk about this notion of constructive discharge because people really need to understand that, what that concept. That is not just something that you, Ricardo Jones, made up. That's not just a, a phrase. That's a legal standing term. Constructive discharge. Let's talk about that for a minute. When some, when an employer makes it so unbearable, intentionally sets up an environment where it is un, unbearable and a person has no other option but to quit, and then they'll call that he or she resigned. Happens all the time with black people. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's it's a horrendous situation, you know. But at the EEOC, since we're talking about the EEOC, the bar to prove constructive discharge is high. When I say the bar, I mean the the, the elements of proof to prove that you were forced out of a position is, is really a hoop that you mm-hmm. have to jump through. You have to show that 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 your treatment was so egregious that you had no other choice but to leave, and uh, you know, and, and that's the first hoop you have to get get through. So. If you claim constructive discharge, then you know you you have to prove it. It's not an automatic thing just because you couldn't mm-hmm. take it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you mm-hmm. have to be able to substantiate it in some type of means or way that that this happened to you and you were forced out. Mhm, mhm. And and people really need to 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 understand that. I, I think that most of the professionals, and I don't know if you agree. Uh, but I'd like for you to chime chime in on it. Most professionals advise uh, individuals that they should stay in the employer's employment because uh, constructive discharge is so hard. Because most people, I mean, a human being, when being treated under the most egregious circumstances and conditions, the first response is, I'm leaving this place. I got to get out of here. I got to retire. I got to quit. I, I can't stand this anymore. It's taking a toll on my health. You know, Ricardo, one of the things, and, and you know, you jump in here anytime you are, because this is something that I think is so important to us um, and why your challenges and, 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 and charges against the EEOC and the way in which you have been so public about it is so important and 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 provides us such uh richness even at your expense is because a lot of people as you say and that's a very outstanding point we want to deny it we want to deny hey i'm as good as everybody else i mean that's the whole thing. This couldn't be race discrimination. The other is the other is we look at the statistics about black health in this country and I often wonder if the conditions and terms under which we have to maintain our 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 jobs, our ability to feed our families also pitches into why we seem to have such high levels of bad health and we die from 
early and we die from diseases that other groups are not dying from at such a at, at, at a at a that are dying at a rate much lower than our own. Hey, Which Jen, is let why me, let, me, let me jump in here real quick because this is very uh-huh. important, right? You know, um, you know when. You know, we're we're seriously in denial about about these issues, you know, and what happens is, and and I'm going to give the analogy of, you know, what went on when we went to elementary school and secondary school and maybe even in high school and maybe even in college because it goes into bullying, right? You know, when when you're in a schoolyard or you're in high school or you're in college and this bully comes up, now you got to think about the reasons why a bully picks on you. A bully doesn't just come up and bully everybody. They bully people that they feel are weaker than themselves. Bullies never pick on people that are equally strong or stronger than them. That's not a bully then. That's somebody that just likes to fight. But bullies like to pick on people that are weaker. So you're being picked on because somebody has identified you as being able to be taken advantage of. Now, whether it's sexual harassment or race discrimination, you know, or any other form of discrimination, you're being picked on intentionally because they know they can get away with it. They've done this numerous times before, and they have a position of authority. And they're going to use their authority and their power over you, your weakness, to to your disadvantage. Now, most people, it's two things. It's fight or flight. Now, when I say that, that means you're either going to fight them back, right, one way or the other by filing a complaint with a federal agency or state agency or a city agency or going to the police, or you're going to run away. The problem is in our community we have so many of our people who are just so much in denial about this that really I'd say 80% just run away. And, you know, it's shameful, and and it's people that are in positions of authority and education and higher education that are just plain out-and-out cowards, and that's how the bullies get away with this stuff, right? And they're cowards, and the problem with their cowardly action in dealing with these situations is every person that that harasser or that discriminator discriminator comes against after that, they feel they're going to do the same thing. So every black person that is encountered by this bad manager or this bad government agency, this bad state and local agency, this bad private sector agency, think that all black people will run away. So the cowards really make it worse on everybody else. Now, some people say, well, I I shouldn't have to be ashamed of being a coward. I think you should because you you have to really take responsibility for what's going to happen to everybody else after yourself while you run away. Now, then there's the other group, which are the fighters, which turn around and fight back immediately. Now, what happens to the group of the people who fight back immediately that stand up and say it's race discrimination and I'm complaining I want my rights on the 1964? They get fired immediately. Now, the cowards buy themselves more time, and they get to try to fit back in. They get to try to become ingratiators and and go along with the, the racial discrimination and harassment. And some of them think that they have a right to do that, that I should be able to back down and become part of this discriminatory employment practices of my employer and just go along with it. Let's just roll everything back to before 1964 to when we had Jim Jim Crow in this country, and I'll go along with the Jim Crow, right? And, and that's it. It's okay. I'm going to keep my job. I'm going to keep getting my nails and my hair done. And I'm going to keep driving my car, and I'm going to keep – paying my mortgage payment, I'll just go along with this stuff, and I should have the right to do that. 
Well, the problem with that is is you just made it worse on every other black person that comes along after you. And we don't think that way. Our parents thought that way, and our grandparents did, because they prepared this country for us to be able to succeed it. They made sacrifices. They died. They were lynched. They were beat. They were raped. And, and, and whites also stood up for us, too, so that we could live in a hostile free and work in a hostile free country, right? But guess what? We got a great number of people in our community that's rolling this stuff back because they say they have a right to go along with this racial discrimination and, 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 and whatever so that they can continue to get paid because they're out-and-out out cowards. So what we're dealing with is a lot of cowardism in our own community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you had um, seven uh, pretty successful years at EEOC. Well, that's not necessarily when you well successful in the in the sense that you didn't get fired, you got paid. But well, at some point, what happened for you to raise the issues of the EEOC? Having, I think when I look at your allegations, what you're saying is that your office, the New York, which is which is uh, a regional office, set up an informal policy which says, you know, African American race discrimination in, in employment cases, just you know, don't investigate them, just keep them moving and let them end up in the trash can. And let's take a certain percentage of them, issue a right to sue letter, and let's wash our hands of it. Is that what happened? Well, Janice, let, let me just say this, right? You know, I, I work at the New York District Office of the EEOC, which basically handles everything north of Trenton, New Jersey, all the way up to the top of Maine and everything from Connecticut out to Buffalo. And, and it was the premier EEOC district in the country. I mean, that means it did better than any other district in the country. So, you know, if, if the New York district office was bad, that means the rest of the country was like five times as bad, right, because the New York district office was probably one of the better offices, as they say, at the EEOC. And you would think so, that they would have the best people in the New York metropolitan area than, than any place else. But from the very beginning, you know, the uh, individual that brought me into the EEOC, you know, made it clear to me the first six months that I was there that he, he, he was on the take. He took a bribe. He took a bribe from Ralph Lauren Polo. And Ralph Lauren Polo is a very discriminating uh, uh, organization. And Ralph Lauren Polo himself is a racist bigot, you know. And I can say that because I was involved in the investigation of Ralph Lauren Polo in, in, in the early uh, 2001 and uh, he was proven that he, he basically didn't want black people working in the front office. He wanted all black people hitting away in the back because he didn't want people seeing that, that he had black employees, that Ralph Lauren Polo, the, the designer. So, so he didn't want black employees in his front office, and he wanted Chinese-made uh, uh, U.S. Olympic team uniforms. We got it. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, so you were working on this Ralph Lauren polo case, and what happened? Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't initially working on that. Uh, uh, the guy who brought me into the EOC is a, a, a federal mediator in Tampa, Florida, right now. He got promoted. He's a GS-13 mediator down in Tampa, Florida. He has dreads. He's a Trinidadian black investigator. And for those who run into Mr. Clyde Lochin down in Tampa and the rest of Florida, you know, he, he – 
he basically, you know, brought me into the EEOC because we were both veterans and we we were in the military together and stuff, and he, he got me hired there. Even though I was very highly qualified and I should have been hired there anyway, but I wouldn't have gotten there unless, you know, he brought me in. He was already working there. And, uh, and, and one day he just asked me to go out with him to a negotiation with Ralph Lauren Polo. I just got to the office and I said, oh, sure, I'll go with you. So we go out to this negotiations, and uh, and this is after he did a two-year investigation of Ralph Lauren Polo statistically, and his statistics had veered out that he discriminated against African Americans and foreign-born blacks, mainly blacks that were from the West Indies and the Caribbean, and uh, uh, and it was about 32 uh, African Americans and foreign-born blacks that were in the class. This was what they call a class action investigation. And, and we go out to this negotiation, and then, you know, he takes me to this room with these 10 lawyers from a law firm called Proskow and Rose, which is one of the largest law firms in this country. Uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, the uh, commissioner of the NBA, his name is David Stearns. He was a former partner at Proskow and Rose. And uh, so we go there, and, and this negotiation is going on, and, I walk into the room, and we sit down, and you have all these white lawyers in there. They didn't have any black lawyers. They had a couple of Asian and South Asian lawyers in there. And uh, and here comes two black investigators walking into the room, and it's like 10 or 15 people, and out of them there's like three blacks in there, the two black investigators and then the one black EEO manager that they hired to impress us. They hired one black EEO manager at Ralph Lauren Polo to show that Hey, we're going to impress the government because we, we just went and brought in this black, our token black guy who's going to oversee all this stuff that's going on so that you guys can believe that we're not really discriminating against black people. So I'm saying, all right, it's a dog and pony show. So we, we get in there and sit down. And then all of a sudden the lead investigator, he's a, a lawyer by the name of uh, uh, Paul Salvatore. And, uh, Paul Salvatore is probably one of the slickest, lawyers that I've ever met in my life. I mean, this guy, I mean, he, he looks like probably a million dollars. He's probably got on a $5,000 suit and, and probably $1,000 shoes, and, I mean, his hair is real wavy, and, and he's just as smooth as he can be. And he says, Ricardo Jones, Clyde Lochin, uh, we're breaking ground on a cancer research clinic in Harlem Hospital because, uh, you know, the EEOC says that Ralph Lauren Polo is discriminating against black people and, and, and foreign-born blacks and, and African-Americans, and we're going to put a cancer research clinic in Harlem Hospital, Janet. And I'm saying, wow. I mean, you're seeing the plans on the wall. You're talking about maybe a, a $20 million clinic. Was this was this their offer to settle the class action? No, this is just to, to dazzle us. Impre- just, Im- Im- impress you. Oh, okay. Impress us. And then he uh-huh. says, okay, we're going to spend $15 million in black organizations in the community, and we hired Call McCall, comptroller of the state of New York's wife. His wife is white. The comptroller of the state of New York at that time was a black gentleman by the name of Call McCall, and he's in an interracial marriage. His wife is white. So they uh, basically hired his wife as a consultant. This is one presence again. Right, that you know, Ralph Lauren Polo really is not against black people. So he went down a list of all the good little tidbits that they have done for black people in the community and stuff. And I'm saying, wow, you know, I'm listening to this. And, and, and the good thing was, is Clyde Lochin is saying, you know, that's all well and good, but let's get back to the 32 people that were harmed, right? So he's going down the list. I don't even think Clyde even knew who Carl McCall was in the first place, right? And I, I mean, he didn't. 
You know, he's going down his list. But it did impress me. And the cancer research clinic did impress me. My mother has cancer. My aunt had cancer. And many people in my family had been affected by cancer and had died as a result of cancer. So, I mean, he got my attention anyway, you know. So I'm sitting there, and then he had, they have lunch catered on a table for us. So they said, hey, we're not going to leave out of here until we, you know, settle this thing. We got lunch laid on and stuff, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, Wow. So uh, Clyde is going down his list of all the people that were harmed and, and what they want, and, and he's saying, well, look, time out. Before we go down the list, let's keep talking about all the good things we're doing in the black community now and stuff, right? And uh, they really didn't want to talk about the people that were harmed. Uh-huh. So they, they, tur- they turned the conference into uh, a circus. And, and what happened, Ricardo, at the end of all of that? Well, they turned the conference into a payoff to the EEOC to to appease the EEOC, you know, to say, hey, look, we can we can kind of pay you off, right? So, but what happened at the end of the conference was, you know, Clyde got a few of those people what they wanted on the list, but you know, after that, you know, that you know, it, it was it. So I stood up at the end of the thing and I said, hey, you guys are the poster children for reform because based on my standards, it looked like they were that Ralph Lauren Polo was trying to make amends, and then they toted out their black token. EEO guy that they brought in to saying that he had the power to hire, fire, and review all promotions, and and we're gonna we're gonna head this stuff off at the pass with this black guy that we brought in there who's just basically a token and a yes guy to just go along with what's going on. And uh, but after we left there, uh, Clyde told me later on that uh, he he went to Paul Salvatore, the attorney, the lead attorney for Ralph Lauren Polo and uh, asked him for $5,000 to be donated to his uh, steel drum club that his son was in. So Clyde, while he was going through his list, was saying, hey, they're giving out all this money. Let me get some of it. And 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 would you say that that is typical of how people are operating at the EEOC? Of course. You know, I mean, you you got people hired at the EEOC that have no business working here, that have no ethics, no morals, no nothing. They, they hire unqualified people and people who really are low low, low in morals and low in ethics. And, and, and then you're talking about negotiating for millions of dollars. i got to tell you, it does have effect on you. I sit in negotiations. At that time, I was making $30,000 in the federal government, right? I think it was a GS7 at the time, right? And then I'm in negotiations for tens of millions of dollars. Now, any any normal person would say, man, this is just over my head. I, I've heard managers can't even count up to millions of dollars. They they don't know the difference between that it's a six-digit amount or a seven-digit amount because the numbers get astronomical after a certain point. And here you are just making $30,000 a year, and now we're talking about millions of dollars a year. And you start saying, well, all this money's going out. Let me get my little piece out of this. Maybe I can get myself something because when you hire the wrong people to do these type of jobs, they're going to start doing that. But it's not just yeah. the little people. Little people only take bribes and, and, and payoffs when they know the big people are doing it, the big fish. And the big fish are doing this stuff also because, first of all, Ricardo Jones and Clyde Lochin should have been going to negotiate with Ralph Lauren Polo and Proskow and Rose and Paul Salvatore, who are sharks. We mm-hmm. should have been the ones mm-hmm. out there. Where were the EEOC lawyers? Or At what EEOC? point, Ricardo, in your career – did you start speaking out against how the agency was operating in regard to African-American employment complaints? 
Well, I started from the very beginning because I had a background in investigations from the United States Army, and I had been in the Army for 20 years as an investigator, and uh, I had worked at other uh, private sector employees. I had worked at a government contractor, and I had been affected. So, you know, I kind of thought, you know, since I had filed a complaint and, and I had got jerked around from the beginning with the EEOC, so I knew ahead of time the EEOC was, you know, a little corrupt and a little messed up. But I thought that I could really make a difference because of my skills. So I started dealing with things differently, and they started realizing the results that Ricardo Jones got and the results that these frauds and, and, and these low moral individuals that they have at the EEOC were getting was not the same. And, and then they started identifying that they needed to deal with Ricardo Jones because I must be doing something illegal. I must be using some type of trick. No, I, w I wasn't using some type of trick. They also would bring in summer interns from these colleges and stuff, and they'd let these summer interns who never had jobs, only had a few jobs, or never been discriminated against or, you know, whatever, they'd let them do investigations and came up with conclusions, and the conclusions they always came up with was dismissed because it's easy to dismiss a case. You just write dismissed. And that's the end of it. You accept what the employer says or the government agency says, and you just dismiss it that way. And that's how they were right. dealing with things. It was so overwhelming. We were more concerned at the EEOC about going to parties after work and, and, and getting together and having a good time and dating each other and sleeping with each other than we were concerned with the work that we had to do at the EEOC. Well, well two years ago, uh, you were, more than two years, you were terminated by EEOC. You filed your own complaint, is that correct? Yes. And then your complaint was dismissed, and you made allegations of th this kind of corruption, and your records were sealed by the Department of Justice. I've got to take a break. And for those of you who are listening, you're listening to Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. And our guest tonight is federal whistleblower Ricardo Jones. He's a former senior investigator at EEOC. And we're talking about corruption and deception in EEOC and whether or not African Americans are being dismissed before being investigated in their employment complaints at EEOC and how the response has been by both the Bush administration and the Obama administration and what it means for you. The number 347-838-9852. And for those of you who are on the line, we're going to take your calls very shortly after we come back from this break. This is Our Common Ground. Word up. Hi, this is Maya, and you are listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Grimm. Talk radio that matters. Harriet Tubman, respect. Malcolm X, respect. W.E.B., Du Bois, respect. Reverend Martin Luther King, respect. Sojourner Truth, 
respect. Word up. It's all about respect. My mother shaped me as an actor, as a musician, as a human being. So when she was diagnosed with colon cancer, it was like our entire family got cancer. And she died when she was only 56, so this is personal. And hopefully my heartbreak is your wake-up call. You can prevent colorectal cancer. If you're 50 or older, get screened. Screening saves lives. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the matrix. You, you are the eventuality of an anomaly which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision, which has led you inexorably here. While this answer functioned, it was... I'm Janice Graham, and you're listening to Our Common Ground. It's a joke. It's a, it's a, far, a forest anyway. 
right? And you go through this whole thing to lead up to a point of the EEOC coming to a determination. And and they're not going to come to a determination, right? What they're going to do is pass the buck along. So after they pass the buck along for a couple of years or four years or five years or whatever, and it can go longer than that, right, you finally get what they call a, a, a right to sue, right? Now, really, what you go to the EEOC to get when you're complaining of race discrimination is not a right to sue. So for the black people that think getting a right to sue solves your problem, the federal district court is, is, is really a kangaroo court. It's a joke. It's a joke. And the judges that they got there basically are not any more qualified than the administrative judge that I dealt with that sent me to the NAACP. You know, I mean, you know, I, I sat through a trial of Alpharetta Martin versus HHS, and I, I watched this judge basically refuse to even address the issues of race discrimination. I watched this judge basically kick out the retaliation charges that Ms. Martin had filed, right, and uh, and then I had a, a clerk in federal district court in Washington, D.C. I had a clerk in the cafeteria come up to me and pull my coattail and say, guess what, Ricardo Jones, I like you a lot, but race cases don't do well. I've been working here for 30 years in federal district court of Washington, D.C., and all the race cases that come in here are always dismissed. I didn't ask that individual to tell me this, but because she liked me, she thought she'd let me know that I'm wasting my time to sit in on a trial that's going to be dismissed anyway, irregardless to the evidence. And and then I watched the judge basically orchestrate the dismissal of that complaint, no matter what the evidence were and what the testimony was. Now, so so what's happening is is we're, we're getting de-asked by the federal government and federal district court, the EEOC, and this administration. And, and don't let me paint the picture that it's just the Obama administration. The Obama administration is just worse at this than anybody, any of the other administrations. The Clinton administration was just as bad. The Bush administration was, was bad. But guess what? The Obama administration is, is, is the worst. They, they've done far worse than the Clinton administration and the Obama and the Bush administration. And you can look at the statistics on the EEOC's website, which will show that. So the reality of this thing is is that, uh, um, you know, they, they seal these cases because the U.S. attorney, right, which U.S. attorneys work for Eric Holder. And as we know, Eric Holder is a black individual who is under indictment by the uh, Congress right now uh, for withholding information from the public uh, basically has his attorneys defending these bad government agencies. And uh, the U.S. attorney, which her name is Elaine London, decided that she's going to seal the information because it was too controversial, too, you know, too, too, too important to the public that she didn't want this information to go out. Now, she just, they just don't do this in Ricardo Jones's case. They do this on mainly all federal government cases that uh, they're, they're defending these bad government employees or these uh, responsible management officials. Uh, they, they do it all the time. So this is just a common practice. But we allow this to happen because we don't really monitor what the Attorney General's office is doing. Now, they have a whole division on civil rights. But nobody ever hears anything that their civil rights division does. They don't go after uh, bad government agencies or, or responsible uh, management officials. Basically, they protect them. So our government basically protects uh, bad employers, bad government agencies, bad management officials, and they get a free lawyer from the Department of Justice. And that's basically what all the lawyers are sitting around waiting to do is to defend the bad government against good employees or against employees' complaints. 
Now, is this? Uh, let me ask you two questions, because because you have such great information. I think it's important for me not to interrupt you, but there are two things that that strike me as I hear you presenting and analyzing your your understanding, uh, your close-up, inner-circle understanding of what happens at the EEOC. In the case of the New York Regional Office, when the Bush administration trans started to transition um, out and the Obama administration came in, what was what is your perception, your observation about this new senior management that came into the EEOC? Well, you know, of course what was happening is there were some atrocious things that were going on under the Bush administration. Basically we're doing damage control. We weren't really highlighting you know, anybody doing anything wrong in, in, in discrimination, whether it was race, religion, national origin, age, or sex. But we were. We were doing a pretty good job at it, but we could have been a lot more aggressive, right? But we weren't really aggressive at the EEOC. When I say the EEOC, I'm talking about nationwide, right? And uh-huh. but what the managers started doing is they started saying, okay, Obama's coming in, the Democrats are coming back, so we're going to get aggressive again. But that was a joke. That was really the cover-up for all the things, all the laws they had violated, all the fiduciary responsibility, because even government lawyers have a thing called fiduciary responsibility. That means that they cannot cover up a crime or a law, allow a fraud to go on or an injustice to go on. That's their, their, their uh, uh, oath that they take as lawyers. But all the lawyers that the EEOC violate their fiduciary responsibilities because that's why they were hired there, because they know that they're willing to go along with, with these this corruption and fraud that's going on at the government. So, But they were alibying it. So, we, you know, I mean, people like me, you know, I didn't know a lot about Barack Obama, and I think a lot of people today don't know a lot about Barack Obama, and they don't know that his wife is, was an administrative assistant to Richard Daley, the most corrupt mayor in this country in the last 50 years, right? They don't know this, right? So many of us really don't know who the Obamas really are. We like them because they're black, and we're making this emotional connection to them because they look like us. We've never had a president that looked like us, but we don't know who they really are. So what the EEOC managers did is basically say that, you know, we're going to get the Democrats back in and we're going to get aggressive again. But the truth was they knew about Barack Obama and they knew about Michelle Robinson Obama. And I dare anyone to Google Michelle Robinson Obama and look at her bio. And you'll see that she was the administrative assistant to Richard Daley, the most corrupt mayor in this country in the last 50 years from Chicago. And there's no doubt about this. And she took a job out of Harvard Law School as his administrative assistant, his right hand. So they knew that they basically had mobbed up. And they knew that they were soft on, on, on discrimination and, and, and complaints of discrimination because they're both lawyers. They're both are employment lawyers, right? And they knew that. So they were basically bamboozling the naive people that worked at the EEOC that thought we were going to go back to enforcing civil rights laws. And the truth was they were going to speed up all the illegal things that were going on at the EEOC. And and they knew this, right? But people like Ricardo said, "Oh man, as soon as Barack gets in there, man, we're gonna we're gonna get back to enforcing the civil rights law." That was a joke. They had already yeah. known that Jacqueline Barron's and everybody who's from New York knows Jacqueline Barron's reputation is she's an opportunist, 
who went to Harvard Law School with Michelle Obama. That's how she got the job, through friendship with Michelle Obama, who was the administrative assistant to Richard Daley, the most corrupt, politically corrupt family in Chicago that has existed in this country. And then they made Richard Daley's brother the chief of staff at the White House to pay him back for all the favors and jobs and high salaries they had got Michelle Obama and her husband, Barack Obama. So people knew this, but regular people didn't. So then when when Obama's transition team or Jack and Barron's came in there, they had already identified people like Ricardo Jones, who was enforcing the rule of law at the EEOC, had to go. And another guy by the name of Brian Mitchell, and and, and there was another young lady out in, in Denver, Colorado. And they, they had a list. They had a hit list that they needed to get rid of these people so they could come in and make money and, and take bribes and, and help their friends out and friends of friends out at the EEOC. They knew who they wanted to get rid of, and they got rid of those people. And, and, before, we go to, before we go to callers, one my question is did Barron's, when she came in, know that the New York region was investigating less than 1% of all African-American employment uh, complaints? Sure she did. You know, and let me tell you how she did, right, because I went to her undergraduate college friend, which is Yvette Clark. She's the minority whip for the Congressional Black Caucus, right? She's a representative, a congressional representative from the 11th District in Brooklyn, New York, who's a friend of my family. And I took that evidence to Ms. Congresswoman Yvette Clark, and I put it in her hands, and I put it in her mother's hands, which is a former city council person in New York by the name of Una Clark, a black West Indian individual from Jamaica. I put it in her hands that Yvette Clark. Uh, 2008 birthday party, which I was invited to and sat next to her. And I thought, because we had these black politicians that, you know, they would really, and I knew one directly had campaigned for her and donated money to her campaign and did all kinds of things, right, that that she would do a good job because she was the minority whip for the Congressional Black Caucus. And you know what? She was a sellout. So what she did was that she immediately ran to Jacqueline Barron's, who she went to Oakland College with, and said, you know, you got this guy over at the EEOC, Ricardo Jones, and he's kind of making trouble over there. You need to get rid of him. And let me give you the evidence that he gave me against the EEOC throwing these black complaints in the garbage and stuff, right? And what did she do with that evidence that she gave to Jacqueline Barron's? And what did Jacqueline Barron's did it? She fired me on 1 April 2010, right, after I had made complaints, after I had emailed her, after I called her at her home in Brooklyn, New York, which was five blocks from where my mother lived, right, after I called and left messages on her husband's answering machine to inform her she never called me back, nor did her husband, but because Yvette Clark, who I went to, sold me out to Jacqueline Barron's, right, then, yeah, she was protecting her Harvard, I mean, her Oakland College, undergraduate college girlfriend. So now you've got Michelle Obama, uh, you know, appointing her Harvard Law School girlfriend to run the corrupt EEOC. And then you've got uh, Yvette Clark, congresswoman, who is informing Jacqueline Barron's, her undergraduate college girlfriend, about Ricardo Jones, the bad, uh, a black man that's enforcing the rule of law, and we need to get rid of him. See, they, they've learned all this stuff while they were interns in Washington, D.C., that if you're black and you get into these positions, cabinet positions, you need to beat your people down, your black people down to survive, because that's how things should be. 
So they're all now. Here are these girlfriends, Michelle Obama, Michelle Robinson Obama, and Yvette Clark, and Jacqueline Barron's all conspiring to say, hey, get rid of these bad black people that we have in these government agencies, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Is it your opinion that this kind of uh, race-based discrimination, bullying, and control happens in many federal government agencies? Because, and, and I ask this question because on one end you've got the Congress that is trying to make the House uh, and – I don't see very much difference between the Republicans and the Democrats because the Democrats are not standing up about it, uh, trying to reduce the federal workforce in terms of numbers. And then you've got the race-based discrimination, bullying, and control on the other hand, and you've got black federal workers in the middle. And it sounds like it synchronizes with the notion that politically we've got to reduce, restrict, and limit the black middle class. Because for those of you who are listening, you have to understand that more than 62% of all the black middle class workers in this country work for the federal government. And then there's another dimension to it, where you have a large workforce of federal workers who are black, who are a federal workforce that gets downsized. You have the same thing concomitant to that action happening at the state and local levels, where local, locally and statewide, the black middle class is in the local and state government. You got to see that connection. Hey, Ricardo, we've got people who want to talk with you. I'd like to go to our phones, uh, and when we come back from taking these calls, I, I do want to talk to you about the uh, kind of practices and connection that the EEOC has with the local legal community. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. And our guest tonight is Ricardo Jones. 770, we're coming to you. Thank you for your call. I respect you. 770, you've been holding for a while, and I apologize. Well, 770, must have. Oh, oh, oh. Hi there. Thank you for your call. Hi. Uh, First of all, I can't thank you enough for this program. Uh, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, uh, you called me in 2010. I filed at EEOC, and then you disappeared. Now I understand what happened. What I'm finding is that not only is it a lot of corruption, but because of people like me that don't have a lot of money, I see how organizations are allowed to get away with this because when we receive our right to sue letters, we can't afford to sue. My my case is active still at this moment, but I'm still trying to find a lawyer that will take it on contingency. Um, your, do, your case is still active since 2000 and what? Uh, I filed in 2009. Mr. Jones called me in 2010. Um, I got the right to sue this year, the beginning of this year, 
and I went and filed so that I didn't lose my time frame to file, but now I'm trying to find a lawyer for contingency because I can't afford what's being told to me regarding these amounts of money that they want. Um, Ricardo, all of your you scenarios want to respond? Yeah, I, I want to thank the caller for calling in and, and highlighting the situation. See, it just shows you she filed in 2009, and, and I called uh, I called her up right before I got fired. Now, most, most EEOC investigators never call up the uh, complainants in the first place, right? The only thing they get from them is a, a dismissal letter, and that's it. But the problem is, and, and what, what the caller is really trying to highlight is, is she, she can't even find a lawyer that's willing to take her case on a contingency, right? That means he'll get paid when he wins. That's because lawyers know he's not going to win. In, in the cases that are won pro se, she filed pro se in Federal District Court of New York, right, which is a very corrupt district court. Most district courts are, right? And uh, is, is that these lawyers are not going to take on a case that where you don't have any money. If you have some money, she can get a lawyer every day because they'll take her money and she'll still lose, right? But because she has no lawyer money, the lawyers are not going to take that. See, the lawyers know this whole game is going on. They, hold, they know the whole process is corrupt. They know the EEOC is corrupt. And, and that's why these cases need to be resolved at the EEOC, because when it gets to federal district court, the, 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 it's just more corruption and you need more money to deal with this. We're paying taxes to uh, be able to go to the EEOC and get a thorough investigation and get our, our complaints resolved, not not right to sue. Because the right to sue doesn't help you, as this individual clearly it can show. She can't even get representation in court. Now, the judge can make sure she gets representation because it, it's in the Constitution and we get representation. But the judge is a lawyer that's getting paid and is on the take himself. And I can say these things because they are. You know, and, and if a lawyer doesn't get paid, the judge says this is not serious. You go file a pro se complaint and go see the pro se clerk in federal district court, first of all, they harass you because they don't want you coming in there without a lawyer. Now, that clerk's job is to help you file pro se on your own, and, and then you go in, you get beat up as bad as you were getting beat up at the EEOC for just trying to file pro se, and you're paying for it most of the times. So the system is really a horrendous system, and these judges, you know, I mean, all they want to make sure is that some lawyer gets paid. Now, to me, using my common sense, using my deductive skills, it, it believes this, that if, if I have money to pay for a complaint, that means I'm paying my lawyer. My lawyer is going to lose anyway. So probably he's giving some of that money to that judge. I, I don't doubt that these things are going on because why would the judges beat up a, comp a pro se litigant if, uh, it, 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 you know, because and, and, and the, the rate of success is so low with pro se litigants then, yeah. uh, because they don't have an attorney? Let me say to the to the caller, uh, caller, there are organizations that can perhaps refer you to attorneys that may take your case on a contingency basis, but generally attorneys evaluate and assess whether or not they can win if they are going to take your case on a contingency. But there are also groups of lawyers who have grants from the Department of Justice are you listening? Yes, I absolutely Who am. are being paid to take these cases. I would, if I were you, and Ricardo, you can chime in here. I would, if I were you, contact your local Department of Justice to find out if they have justice initiative programs in your area where a nonprofit legal organization is being granted federal funds 
to take a case such as yours. Okay. You know, I'm going to tell you something, right? That that doesn't exist, right? It, it doesn't exist. You know, Department of Justice is part of the problem, right? They're, 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 they're lawyers Absolutely. who, who, who uh, we pay for with our tax dollars are defending these bad employers in the first place, and they're friends with these bad employers, and they're looking to get jobs with these bad employers, whether it's a private sector employer, and that's what we're talking about now, a private sector employer, right? They're looking to go to work for Ralph Lauren Polo. So if, if these government lawyers are looking to go to work for Ralph Lauren Polo, why would they take some action against Ralph Lauren Polo or any employer? And they wouldn't, right? So there yeah. isn't. See, there's so a what do you? That's, that's a, so what do you, that's the question. Uh, what the do you suggest has, then? Well, the, the the whole thing is is we need to really get involved with uh, who these judges are and how they get appointed and why they get appointed, right? And we need to look into judicial misconduct. Like I said, I sat into the trial of Alpharetta Martin versus HHS, and that judge should be disbarred. He should be disbarred. He brought his uh, law school uh, students and the teachers' law school students how they fix cases in federal district court. And I saw his students come in there, and they gave him a lesson. Now, these are going to probably be U.S. attorneys in the future, but they came in learning how to fix a case to get the result that, that the agencies want. So we're accepting this corruption, and we're accepting all of this stuff. And when we accept this stuff and we only fight back when it affects us, then we're just as guilty as the people who, who are perpetrating this fraud against us, right? They, they think they have a right to make money by uh, manipulating us in this whole complaint process because we don't say anything about it. We're not holding the president accountable for anything. We're not holding him accountable for Jacqueline Barron's. We're not holding him accountable for the judge, the bad judges at the MSPB, the Merit System Protection Board. We're not holding him accountable for the FLRA, the Federal Labor Relations Administration, or, or the Office of Special Counsel. We, we, we don't have a task force to investigate corruption in federal district court. We haven't asked the, the, the Harvard Law professor that we have as the president and his wife who graduated from Harvard Law School to have a task force or a czar to, to deal with this corruption that affects the, the most important part of our society, which is our right to, to earn a decent living. We're not asking them for any of these things. So they're laughing at us. They think this is a joke. So Michelle Obama, Robinson, and Yvette Clark, and Jacqueline Barron think that they're just so smart with Barack Obama that we don't ask them to really do anything that they yeah. could possibly do. Let me ask the, the caller. Uh, to uh, email us and at uh, ocginfo at Our Common Ground, where we can connect you with our guest and maybe we can help you look at some nonprofit law firm out there who might be able to help you. Okay. Thank you, o caller, for your call. Thank you and so very much. email address, again, is ocginfo at OurCommonGround.com. Thank, Thank you. you for your call, and we wish you Thank loads you of luck. Thank you very Thank you. Were you also listening on a smart device, and you need me to put you on mute? Yes, put me on, put me on mute. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your call. We're going to go to 405, and I apologize for your long hold. Thank you for calling. I respect you. You're on Our Common Ground with Ricardo Jones. Yes, I respect you too, Janice and Hotep. Hotep. To you Brother and Don. to your guest. Yes, yes, this is he. Uh, to your guest, Ricardo. Ricardo, uh, got to give you kudos, my man, because 
there's not many individuals that are placed in uh, such a uh, strategic position to be able to sustain themselves while fighting uh, the uh, system and, and, and specifically EEOC. Uh, you have your 20-year retirement, which uh, sort of gives you an edge as to uh, you're not, not not coming in as a, as indigent. Would you not oh, agree? Oh, no, he doesn't have 20-year retirement. Oh, yeah, from no, the United from, States Army. I am retired oh, from, from the United Army. States. Okay, okay. Yes, yes that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's a small retirement, i got to let you know. It's small. Yeah, I understand that, but at least it's something. You know, I, I, I am a former uh, uh, EEOC investigator, senior investigator uh, with the uh, EEOC back in when Eleanor uh, uh, Norton Norton Holmes was the uh, chair. And I have to uh, come into agreement with with your experiences and with your, uh, your, your testimony that you have given here today as to what goes on with uh, some of our government agencies and tonight specifically EEOC. I would uh, suggest and uh, like your comment, uh, uh, your comments on this after I uh, make my comment, that anyone who's working in employment, working for an employer, to where they are, are covered by uh, federal laws of discrimination, they need to keep a record, notebook, diary of acts of discrimination that they themselves experience, and especially identify by name, date, times, actions, uh, in extremely detailed uh, a diary as to what's taking place in the workplace. Because if you come into the uh, arena and you have just allegations that are unsubstantiated, uh, first of all, EEOC, as you have indicated, is going to toss you out right away. You're not going to even get heard. You're not even going to have enough uh, cause for them to even to begin to investigate your complaint. Now, and nowadays, Ricardo, as you indicated, they don't even investigate the complaints. What they do is give you your right to sue because they have all of these deadlines that they have to meet with respect to productivity in order for them to keep their, their own positions. And so the easiest route to go is to uh, after your intake, which is uh, which is this just initial uh, 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 meeting with the EOC. If you make it past that, then you're 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 assigned an investigator probably, and at least have the investigator. I would suggest this, Ricardo, to to have the people have the investigator at least get a position statement paper from the employer. Before they, well, you know, well, don't they, they get, do that in intake? No, not necessarily. If you don't have the uh, uh, what, 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 like Ricardo has been stating here, if you don't have uh, the requisite uh, uh, evidence, probable, you know, the, you know, the evidence that's needed to to go forward with your complaint from your allegations that you make, 
which are probably un, unsubstantiated because you you don't you don't know what what to do. The average individual don't know how to investigate discrimination complaints. They don't know what to uh, records are are necessary in order to sustain and to fight off uh, a summary judgment. You know what I mean? But my 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 question is this: If you haven't well, if you have an investigator that's not willing to investigate, they're not going to talk to the complainant. As 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 Ricardo keeps pointing out, but when when a complaint is taken, and I've seen the EEOC complaint form, when the complaint is taken. Isn't there a statement that the complainant makes at that time uh providing information about if they if they have maintained it uh records evidence witnesses the whole nine yards well, let me jump in here real quick right kind of sum this yeah. up thank you very much caller i mean you you bring out some very good points and uh um for, first off is right. You know, uh, uh, race discrimination today is very sophisticated, and we're not dealing with it in a sophisticated manner. You can go out and buy a $40 micro recorder, and you can record every conversation that's said around you. I know in the state of New York, you don't have to let people know that you're recording a conversation, right? So, I mean, that, that would behoove anybody to do that and to keep, you know, documented notes so that when you do go to the EEOC, if they were going to do an investigation, they would have the evidence. But I'm going to tell you, I've gotten many complaints that have tons of evidence. The EEOC is basically processing widgets. People are not human beings. They're not dealing with uh, egregious situations in life, employment situations. They're just widgets as far as the EEOC management, Jacqueline Barron's and Barack Obama really see you as, right? You're just being moved from one side of a desk to the other. And the fastest thing that can happen is, a, is to dismiss your complaint. Most of the investigators at the EEOC are not trained and are not qualified investigators in the first place. Even if you gave them the evidence, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Most people really don't know what they're supposed to do with the EEOC anyway. And then the other group of them have been conditioned basically to deny that race discrimination even exists. So, you know, basically all black people are lying and we're playing the race card, so it's going to be dismissed anyway. So, you know, you got to understand what's going on here. And I want to get back to what Janice was alluding to in the beginning. The chairman of the committee that oversees the EEOC, which is the health and, and, and safety and, and workplace, is a guy by the name of Senator from Iowa by the name of Tom Harkin. And Tom Harkin, when he was doing the confirmation hearings for Jacqueline Barron's, and the person who gave the introductory uh, 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 introduction for Jacqueline Barron's was Yvette Clark, the congresswoman from Brooklyn that's a friend of my family that I know personally that is selling out black people, right? Tom Harkin said to uh, Jacqueline Barron's, Jackie, you know, I want to know what you're going to do with that large amount of backlog complaints you got at the EEOC, which goes to the Carlos question. And, and, and basically he was saying, you got a bunch of these black people complaining. You got a whole bunch of them. Tell me what's your plan to get rid of those complaints, Jackie. Jackie says, well, I hadn't been at the EEOC real long, so I can't tell you what I'm going to do with all these black complaints. So then he put her on the side, and she got a recess appointment and confirmation. And then later on, she came back to him, and guess what she did? She showed that when she took over the EEOC, she told every investigator at the EEOC they need to dismiss an additional 50 complaints by the end of the year, right, at the EEOC, each investigator across this country had to dismiss an additional 50 complaints. 
Mainly those were 50 extra black complaints on top of the 150 black complaints that they're dismissing anyway. And then when she went back to Tom Harkins, who's in charge of the committee that oversees the EEOC and the Senate, she said, see, see, look what I did. These statistics went down. I got rid of all those black complaints. And he said, you're confirmed, along with the rest of the senators, and she got confirmed. Now, see, that's exactly what goes on, right? And there, there are many senators. Ted Kennedy was on that committee, too. People thought Ted Kennedy was righteous. He's not righteous because he went He's along dead. with his team also. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you, you, we, let me just say this right quick. I'm going to get off. We must remember that we are, are, are living in a system of white supremacy. And if you don't understand that, you're going to be confused. And so when, 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 when you're dealing with uh, the, uh, uh, like, 770 called in on her with her complaint, and she has her right to sue. But, see, there's a catch-22. After you do, Absolutely. You get, when you get your right to sue, you, get, you have 90 days in which to file in federal court. That's 90 days in which you have to try to seek out counsel. And I guarantee you, it's going to be like pulling teeth trying to get an attorney, yeah. a competent attorney, to take your case. Period. Let alone on a pro se base, uh, on a on a contingency basis. And right. if you go pro se, I guarantee you that nine times out of ten, they're going to kick you out on a summary judgment before right. you file. While you complain. Now, yeah. now I, I'm going to get off because others want to talk. Okay, brother, Don, thank you for your call yeah, from Oklahoma. Thank you very much, Paula. It's the Don from Oklahoma. We're going to go to 301. 301, thank you for holding. You're on the air. I respect you at Our Common Ground with Ricardo Jones. 301? Yes, Hello. Good evening. Thank Good evening. you for your Hi, call. my name is Tanya Ward-Jordan, and I, first of all, I want to thank you so much for uh, having a Mr. Ricardo Jones on your show. I know him very well, and uh, I just uh, want to thank him for being bold, consistently expressing the views of the failures of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, um, I am uh, the founder of a group called the Coalition for Change, Inc., C4C, and I founded the group because I am a, a federal worker injured because of, of racism and retaliation in the federal government. I think one of your callers was asking uh, what can be done, and I was so glad that um, uh, Mr. Jones Ricardo spoke up about the Justice Department because, as he stated, they are part of the problem. Um, they're not the go-to agency, unfortunately. And uh, I think you, as the hostess, had mentioned, too, about where was this discrimination? Is it in each agency? And we can tell you, I'm sure um, Ricardo would agree, racism is throughout the federal government, from agriculture through Veterans Affairs. And therefore, it's a problem uh, not just for the federal worker, but for the public at large, because the federal worker is the one who has to provide such services through uh, agencies like the U.S. Department of Agriculture that deals with your food services and agencies like the Social Security Department where you get your Social Security benefits and mm -hmm. the like. Mm -hmm. um, I would encourage your, your viewers or your listening audience to Google uh, and just put in the search engine uh, racism in the federal government, A through Z, and you will see that it's pervasive. And 
it is problematic because EEOC is a federal agency. And as uh, Ricardo Jones so articulately spoke, uh, EEOC is a government agency that is driven by performance like widgets. It is not a, it's not personal, uh, it's very production oriented. And uh, a lot of the um, administrative judges, at least from the federal um, perspective, who listen to our complaints, a lot of them are not even really judges. They're not even certified to sit and hold those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very problematic, and I'm so grateful that you're covering this and so appreciative to uh, Ricardo Jones for being a staunch advocate to get the word out. And that's basically what I wanted to say. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. You're certainly going to be hearing from me because I think at this point, as uh, we, as I said, that we have two polar axes going on with uh, the black middle class, um, which is predominantly the federal workforce, that we need to really look at this. And I've talked uh, briefly with Ricardo about doing a second part to this show. I think it's so important, and I think there are so many angles and strategic planning that has to go on about how you tackle fixing the EEOC. Exactly. I think one of your callers mentioned what can we do. I did want to say this. One of the things we're trying to do with C4C, the Coalition for Change, is one is expose, just like what you're doing here, and also using YouTube, social, all the social media, Twitter and all that, and, we, and get the names out there of the people who are complicit in this. Yeah. So that's one thing. And we, and the there, other, we need a support and support group, and that's what C4C is, and there needs to be maybe even many support groups in, in different local areas cause, yeah. cause because when you are an advocate and you started um, – uh, talking about justice, they come after you. It, it can be mentally draining, financially draining, and you need people. You need to be surrounded by people like yourself. Exactly, and we need to have more victories. Uh, uh, some months back, um, last year in the fall, we had Dr. Marsha uh, uh, Coleman Adebayo mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. on talking about her um, ex- just tragic and horrific experience. At EPA. Yes, I know Dr. So, Marsha Comanata Bio quite well. She and I both work on what is called the No Fear Act in the federal government. Yes. So we, we go back. Um, right. With regard to the EEOC, and, and I'll just close. I mean, you may have some other callers want to speak, but the EEOC, everybody should care because, see, that's the agency, whether you work in the federal or the private sector, they were entrusted to. Uh, to really monitor, to eliminate discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and the whole nine yards. And what's going on right now, they're really not addressing uh, racism. Even though they know it exists, only less than 5% of the time do they even find for the employee or the applicant. And as um, Ricardo Jones so appropriately stated, and you can find this on the EEOC website, um, the the majority of, of persons filing uh, particularly race discrimination complaints are black. It's not so much Asians or uh, Hispanics or even people with targeted disabilities that they say the largest, uh, as far as race bases, I should say, the largest race-based complaints are filed by African Americans, yet 
this administration or any other administration uh, has not been dealing with African-American complaints. And it is even more so detrimental to us now because, unfortunately, you know, it, the whole topic of being black is not being discussed or, or the issues that affect us are not being appropriately dealt with. And, so and that's because politically, Tanya, this administration has given permission to this entire country to be stupid, colorblind. Yes, yes. And can I share one more? I keep saying this is last thing. Yeah. I have to share something else with you because, I, as I tell my colleagues, I experienced something like this on a micro scale before. What I mean by that, I'm an employee of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And back in the early 90s, we had our first black secretary, and that was Ronald H. Brown. He was our first black secretary, and we had a lot of discrimination going on prior to him coming. But once he came, it was like white man backlash. They were so angry that there mm -hmm. was African-American in charge. Yes. They started promoting yes. all, the, uh, all the white employees. They started discriminating and retaliating against black people. And uh, we had fallout. And this is what I'm seeing under this administration. We have a first African-American president. We're getting a lot of backlash, and there's no one at the top standing up to address accountability in the federal government. And it, it impacts the public at large. Like I'm saying, I don't want to get people twisted. When I say federal government, I'm just talk, not talking about federal employees because it's trickled down. We federal. If you have racism on the inside, it, it, it impacts the public because who deals with your Social Security benefits? Who deals with your taxes, IRS? So if you have a racist internal, uh, uh, internal uh, RS employee or administrator, if you have somebody racist on the inside and you're going to have them um, administer your programs and services, you would definitely be negatively impacted. So What a wonderful point. What a wonderful point, Tanya. And I'm thinking, and for those of you who are listening, uh, I am also the executive producer of TruthWorks Network, and we are going to be doing six weeks of shows about em employment discrimination, both in the federal workforce as in sector in the government sector as well as in the private sector and the nonprofit sector. Thank you so much Tanya for your call. You're most and welcome. I certainly will be in touch. And for those of you Thank who you, want more information, you can um I will post information at our community forum at our common ground talk.ning.com. Thank you Tanya. We're going to go to uh, 914, and take your call, and then we've got to start wrapping this up. 914, thank you for your call. You're on Our Common Ground with Ricardo Jones. Okay. Hi, sister. Thank you so, so very much for having this program tonight. Um, it's very, very important, and I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again and again. Um, I really appreciate your voice, the fact that you are bringing issues that are very important to the community. I appreciate Mr. Jones for having the courage to speak out. I know that this has been a lonely battle because most of the black media is closed down. They want to discuss
um, things that are not directly affecting black people. They would rather deal on the top and spend hours talking about the Republican Party instead of talking about the problems that we are having in the community. I really commend you. My daughter is a victim of what you're talking about, and I am a fighter, and I will be in touch with Mr. Ricardo Jones, and I will also be in touch with one of the other sisters who, who just phoned in. I think although the numbers may be small, we can fight and we can win. The thing is, we must learn how to fight. And I think the brother laid it out. Once we're together, and we and the issues are very clear. And it's not that we don't know how. It's just that um, we're so separated at this time. And you allow you by having this forum, you bring us together, even if it's few in numbers. I will never despair when I know that I got somebody to watch my back. The only time I despair when I think I'm by myself. And so again, thank you. Thank you, uh, May Jackson. Straight out of Brooklyn, fighter, sister, warrior. Um, a regular listener, and Ricardo, she's absolutely right that this is a fight that belongs to us. Yeah, Janice, you're right. But we, we have to come together as a people, and these issues are very important to our children and our grandchildren. I, I hate to admit to this, to the call of Janice, but it, 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 it's probably too late for us. But what we're fighting for is our children and our grandchildren. If we don't come together and make this fight, and if we don't force whoever the president is to address these issues that affect our community, then we're, we're rolling back to Jim Crow. And, and there are very few Absolutely. of us who understand what Jim Crow really is. But Jim Absolutely. Crow is a horrendous, a horrendous state that our grandchildren and our children have no idea of how to deal with. They may not even know what Jim Crow means. So we must come together as a community, and we must force whoever is in the White House to address our issues. And our numbers are large if we stand together. If you hit somebody with an open hand, then you just slap them. But if you close that open hand and make a fist, and that's what we need to do. We need to make a fist, and we need to hit them with a fist. And how you deal with a bully in the schoolyard is, is when a bully comes up to bully you, you can't run away and think that's an answer. And there are many people in our community that think running away is an answer. What you do is you knock the shit out of a bully, and they will stop bullying you in that schoolyard. It works. Now, there is no <laughs> other answer but to knock the shit out of them. So we have to knock the shit out of these people in this government and these black politicians and this black media that is allowing this stuff to go on. And if we don't do this, then we are dooming our children and our grandchildren to Jim Crow. Well, Ricardo, uh, I think that this is a, a compelling uh, issue that at some point, you know, we're always talking about how we have to choose our battles. This is a battle worth choosing. And I want to invite you to join me at TruthWorks Network, and we're going to put a panel together. And for six weeks, we're going to go after this. Because our common ground is not just talk radio. This is talk that matters. Alternative, activist, empowerment, talk radio. I've been doing this for 25 years, over 25 years. And uh, I don't use the and 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 it is not enough to talk about it. So I'm inviting you 
to work with me to put together a TruthWorks program that will run for six weeks. Every Monday for six weeks, we're going to come together in a town meeting to talk about discrimination in employment, how you tackle it, what it is, understanding what the options are, and the EEOC, and this administration. Janice, I'm glad to join you with that uh, workshop and the task force, and I hope that we can bring in people like Tanya. I'm going to be calling Tanya Ward. And if we can meet every Monday night for six weeks to lay out, to carve out a plan, to make a pledge, to make EEOC and the system that is designed by law. We've got Title VII. I mean, I know that most of the cases coming out of EEOC have to do with disability uh, discrimination. And now because of the new thing for lesbian, gay, transgendered uh, uh, persons, uh, protection in employment, that's a whole new group that it, it essentially will be, and it should be a protection, but it essentially will be another detraction from the high level of race discrimination that has been allowed to go by the board in this country. So I want all of you who are listening, who are interested in this subject, to go to our community forum at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com and register so that we are able to send you information about that programming. We'll be bringing people, Ricardo and I will be working to bring in people like Tanya Ward, to bring in people like Dr. Marsha, uh, Coleman Adebayo, to bring in people from the No Fear Act who understand how this is working, to bring in people from the Lawyers Committee, our friend uh, who's been on this broadcast many, many times, Barbara Arnwine, uh, to challenge the NAACP and the Urban League about what they are doing about uh, black black discrimination against black people in this country, both in the government and in the private sector. And please don't forget the nonprofit uh, sector of employment. Uh, what, what is happening in, uh, Ricardo, another, another area is in temporary employment agencies. What's happening in other kinds of employment resources that black people can't, can't tap into for the for the small amount of jobs that are there. Uh, Ricardo Jones, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. I look forward to our collaboration at TruthWorks Network, where the truth must be spoken more than once. And you and I will be talking Monday morning. Uh, you will find that I'm a person, I when I say it, i got to do something about it. So I know that you have made a great sacrifice, and I want to tell you, brother, that I am so privileged, uh, I feel so privileged 
to be able to work with you, to know you, and to support you because you've paid the ultimate sacrifice. You've been unemployed, underemployed, uh, and it takes a great deal of stuff to so publicly and so honestly and so courageously look back and hold on to your own principles about what things are. So thank you so very much, and I'll be talking to you on Monday. And for those of you who are listening, you can also join us at our Facebook page. You can follow me, follow this program on Twitter at Janice OCG. Uh, our hash mark is Talk That Matters. So, uh, Ricardo, my sincere, sincere kudos to you about what you are doing. And we've got to find somebody that can write the book for you. <laughs> well, th- thank you very much, Janice, and thank you for uh, setting up this uh, interview and broadcast. And, and it's very important to our community and to our nation and uh, very important that uh, we, we address these issues in the black community because the only answer, the only solution is the, the solution that we come up with. Nobody else can come up with the solution to this problem but us. Our grandparents yep. had the answer. Our great-grandparents had the answer. And our parents had the answer. But somehow or the other, they've convinced us that we don't have the answer. And now we're allowing other people to manipulate us in, 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 in this problem. And the problem right. is our problem. And we must right. solve it ourselves. Right. We want to uh, thank you, Ricardo, and I'll be talking to you on Monday. And a big Gratitude from our listeners uh, for joining us tonight. 770, want to thank you for your call. 914, want to thank you for your call. And to Wanda, uh, to Tanya Ward, thank you for your call. And the Don, one of uh, our oldest and most loyal fans, we want to thank you for your call tonight here at Our Common Ground. I want to I really encourage all of you to join us at TruthWorks Network in our new program premiering on Wednesday night at 10 p.m. at blogtalkradio.com backslash TruthWorks with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Soul of Fire, a place where black people can find solace, sanctuary, and sanity. Um, and I do, did have a conversation with Dr. Uh, Johnson uh, this morning, and he called me to let me know what his program is going to be all about on um, on Wednesday night. And his program is being called um, his program for Monday night will be looking at the sentimentality of religion and the difference between religion and spirituality and he's calling it we got more religion and have we lost our minds in it i'm janice graham that'll be at 10 p.m and don't forget next friday night at truthworks network he's the grandfather of black political talk and analysis the Alpha Show at 10 p.m. on TruthWorks Network. Thank you all so much uh, for being with us. 
and um, stay stay in touch as much as you can. I'm Janice Graham, and this has been Our Common Ground. We'll be right back here at 10 p.m. next Saturday night. We'll be meeting with the culture critic, Blogging While Brown, Yvette Cornell. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the matrix. You you are the eventuality of an anomaly which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision, which has led you inexorably here. While this answer functioned, it was obviously fundamentally flawed, thus creating the other one. Thank you for being here with us at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. And for me, and for my co-host, Alpha of the Alpha Show, we appreciate your listenership and your loyalty. We'll see you next week, 10 p.m., here on Our Common Ground. Woke up this morning after another one of those crazy dreams.